I want to talk about the disciplines again this morning, and uh, in Build we talk about uh, five disciplines, the heart, the home, the ministry, the qualifications, and the hermeneutic. Uh, we, when we use the word discipline in this way, you might say that we're actually talking about different spheres of the Christian life where faithfulness requires a disciplined, intentional pursuit. Um, to be faithful leaders in our homes, in the church, men must be those who discipline themselves and intentionally pursue caring for their hearts, those in their home, and those in the church with God's word. And when we do that, we must also do so prayerfully, depending upon the Lord's wisdom and his strength, taking seriously what God means in his word as we prayerfully, obediently, worshipfully pursue a life of obedience that the Lord would make us qualified men, able to be used for his purposes in the church. But there's another way that Christians speak of the word discipline, and, and that's usually in the context of spiritual disciplines. Um, what is a spiritual discipline? It's an, an intentional, disciplined pursuit of those means which God says he actually uses to produce spiritual growth in our lives. Um, and so if we want to grow in our diligent pursuit of faithfulness in the build disciplines, as we call them, of our heart, our homes, ministry, we must intentionally pursue the means of growth or spiritual disciplines that God has actually designed to, be, um, to produce fruitfulness in our lives. And we want to do that in each of those various spheres of our life, in our heart, our home, in our ministry, how we have how we approach God's word, how we pursue godliness in the, in the qualifications. And so I want to talk about a few of these spiritual disciplines this morning and then think about how they relate to our build disciplines. And the first is our pursuit of discipline in our intake of God's word. You know, we must have a steady diet of intaking God's word so that we can shepherd our own heart with it and care for others. First uh, Peter 2, 2 says... Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You want to grow in faithfulness in the care of your own heart. You want to grow in faithfulness in the care for your home and those in the church. Well, you must cultivate a desire for God's word. And you must crave God's word as if it's the only thing that will satisfy, just as milk is the only thing that will satisfy a an infant. And this is why in Build there is such an emphasis on God's Word. Um, if you look at the Build disciplines, all five of the disciplines, you can see that God's Word is central to all five of them. But there are other disciplines that God uses for our growth as well, that God has instructed us to pursue. And, and what's another one of those? Well, prayer. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Prayer is an activity, and it's also a relationship with the Lord. It, it expresses our dependency on the Lord, our worship of Him. And almost every week that Scott has stood up here and shared the disciplines with you all, all of you men, he has emphasized the importance of you, man, pursuing faithfulness, to be daily pursuing the Lord in prayer with your Bibles open. 
We want to be, we want to be men who are, we've got our Bibles open, we're caring for our hearts with God's Word, and we are responding in prayer and dependence upon the Lord. If you are reading a book on spiritual disciplines, you might come across another discipline, meditation. So what, what is meditation? Well, this sort of meditation, biblical meditation, is not like the world's meditation. The world's meditation is all about emptying your mind. Uh, biblical meditation is about filling your mind. Um, it's filling your mind with God's Word. To meditate is to think deeply on it, to digest it, to turn it over in your mind, considering its meaning, its, its bearing on your life, on your thoughts and your actions and your motives and what that might look like for how I interact in my home. Don Whitney described meditation as the missing link between Bible intake and prayer. Look at Psalm 5 with me. Turn to a couple passages this morning. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. This is verse 1. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. Psalm 19, verse 14, has similar. Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Notice both of these verses, uh, Psalm 5, verse 1 through 3, and Psalm 19, 14, both of them are prayers. And, and both of these verses refer to other words that are spoken in prayer. And, and in both cases, meditation is actually the catalyst that moved David from the truth of God's word to actually calling out in prayer. And after, so after we read God's word, we meditate upon it, and we, then we speak to God about it in meaningful prayer. And this sort of intentional consideration of God's word fuels our prayer as we pray about what we've encountered in God's word. And, and then not only do we have something substantial to say to him in prayer as we're thinking about his words to us, but we also have confidence that we're actually praying God's thoughts back to him. We're praying according to what he has revealed. And there's a lot more that can be said about meditation. It's all over our scripture. But what I want to actually speak today about is another spiritual discipline very connected to Bible reading, meditation, and prayer. And that is scripture memory. Um, and you might be tempted to think, is this really necessary? Like, I read the Bible every day, and I pray, and I think about God's word when I have it open in front of me. And you know what? We have such access to God's Word. I've got 30 translations of God's Word in my pocket on my phone. Is Scripture memory just something that it used to serve a purpose when people didn't have such access to God's Word, but today it's not really necessary? 
Um, what does God's word have to say about that? So I want to consider the effect of scripture memory on discipline one, our hearts. So turn to John 15, 15 verse 8. If you abide, sorry, 15 verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Notice there, God uses his words, plural, to cause his children to bear fruit. And spiritual growth comes through God's word, but notice what Jesus says, if my words abide in you. What does it mean for Jesus' words to abide in us? At At a minimum, it means that we are remembering them. More than that, it's captivating our thoughts, dominating our heart more and more. Consider Psalm 1. This is probably a very familiar passage. You don't need to turn there. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the, seat, in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. The man who would be fruitful in Psalm 1 meditates in God's law day and night. And notice this is the word meditate, not just read. Yes, you should read scripture every day. Day and night, great. But this is the word meditate. And this meditation is directly connected to man's bearing fruit. And The focus here is the intentional, thoughtful reflection on his meaning. Memorizing God's word actually allows this essential task and delight of meditation to continue long after you've closed God's word. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How does one meditate on God's word all the day? Whether Psalm 119 was written by Daniel or David or somebody else, they all had one thing in common. They had other responsibilities. They had jobs. They didn't walk around with scrolls all day long, putting aside their responsibilities to have God's word open before them. But God's word was so ingrained into him that it constantly filled his mind and resulted in his praise and his thanksgiving, his meditation, led to prayer and worship. Hopefully, Joshua 1.8 is familiar to you. If this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. We commented before that Meditation is a wonderful bridge between your Bible reading and your prayer. But in Joshua 1.8, we also see that it is a bridge to obeying God's word. Um, we won't read them, but in Proverbs 2.1 and Proverbs 7.1, Solomon commands his son to store up or treasure his commandments. And then in Proverbs 7.3, Solomon says, Write them on the tablet of your heart. 
This would include internalizing, memorizing these commands and treasuring them. I'm very familiar as we think about our own battle against sin. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Treasuring God's word in our heart enables meditation day and night throughout the day and it further presses into our own hearts the our need to pray continually in response to his word but it also provides hope and encouragement as we memorize scripture there's now a storehouse of scripture treasured in our heart that the holy spirit can actually apply to our hearts and convict us of sin, encourage us, exhort us. Would the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is pleased to teach us through the word that has been implanted in our heart, that has been pressed into our heart. Lastly, I want to, I want to turn to the book of James. James 1, verse 22. But become doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This man will be blessed in what he does. Notice at the center of that is this looking intently at the, at the perfect law. How do you become a fruitful doer of the word? First step by not forgetting what you read. Long for intentionally, long intentional looking, meditating upon and internalizing God's word so that you don't forget it. And then doing it. Meditation is this bridge between knowing and, and doing. And scripture memory then is this bridge between reading it and actually knowing it. Um, do I read it, forget it, and I walk away? Or, or do, I, do I treasure it? Do I, do I know it when I walk away? So that as I, so I can meditate upon that truth that this Holy Spirit can continue to produce change in me as he applies it to my life. How does scripture memory affect our ministry in our homes? Deuteronomy 6.6 6 says these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. God's words, memorized, enable faithfulness to have his words on your lips when you sit down, when you walk, and when you sit, lie down, and rise up, so that you have the ability to teach your children diligently in all circumstances. How might scripture memory, specifically targeting things that you want to impress upon your children, 
from God's Word or how you'd like them to think about God's world when you're maybe out on a walk with them or you're having them work alongside you in the garage? What passages would especially minister to your wife if you were to take the time to memorize them so that at the appropriate time you could be, you can minister God's Word to her? How does it affect our own battle against sin, our own desire to shepherd our own hearts? I mean, have you seen, I'm certainly you've seen how passages that we've committed to memory instruct us and encourage us in the midst of temptation. Um, when we're tempted, oh, let me go look at that passage to see what it says. No, it's those things that God has impressed upon our hearts that you have, we've taken the time to internalize that the Holy Spirit then can, brings about conviction of. Well, how might scripture memory affect our ministry? Write down Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How do Christ's words dwell in you? How do Christ's words dwell in you richly? Uh, memorizing God's word has a profound impact upon our ability to encourage and admonish one another in those moments when we don't have prepared words to say, but something arises in our conversation and we need to minister to this person. What benefit would spending the next year memorizing 25, 50 verses? that address the most common types of challenges or sin and discouragements that come up in your small group? What sort of effect and encouragement might that enable you to have in the lives of your brothers? Much more can be said about this. And there is a lot, lots of ways we can pursue scripture memory. Uh, so I don't want to talk about ways to pursue it, but I want to, I want to just impress upon you the need. This is something that we ought to be going after if we want to be faithful. If you want to be men that are faithful in these built disciplines, I will challenge you to think about what has God revealed in his own word about this discipline? Do you, do you see this discipline in the pages of scripture? And what would faithfulness look like for you? How might you lead your homes in this? First, by example. Why? Because we want to be pleasing to him. We want to treasure his word because we recognize it as the spiritual fruit that we need to grow in our salvation. Let me, let me pray for us and then we'll jump into our discussion groups. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we find so many things to spend our time with. And I can't think of all the countless hours that I have spent occupying my mind with mindless tasks and entertainment. Lord, how much benefit there would be if I had taken some of that time and, and labored to press the truth of your word into my heart so that I might treasure it, be able to speak to my children, to my wife, to those in, my, in, in the church with, that I might speak it to my own heart that when temptation comes, I might be able to submit my heart and entrust my heart to what you have revealed in your word. Lord, we are all tempted. We all find ourselves being tempted. And 
in those moments, we have to fight for faith. We have to fight to believe what your word says and not what our hearts and what the world is telling us. And how do we fight to entrust ourselves to that which we don't know? Lord, I pray, Lord, that this would just be an encouragement to us to, to pursue diligence and delight in your word as we, we think carefully about how to treasure it. And that would just have an overflowing effect in, Lord, not just we would know Scripture for the sake of knowing it, but that it would fuel our meditation and our prayer and our fight against sin and our participation in ministry to, in our homes and our, in our church. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. This morning we're going to speak on Discipline 2, the home, the man of the house, the man in the house, you and your household. Couple clarifications. This is not an ant survey. If you're looking at your notes, that's a New Testament survey of the man in the house. Um, and that's even too big of a name. It's it's really a survey primarily in Paul's pastoral letters to Timothy and to Titus, with a, a little bit going outside of Timothy and Titus. Uh, we'll start in uh, Ephesians, if you wanted to open up your Bible to Ephesians. So it's not an ant survey. The structure is, we're going to talk about the why. Uh, why is it important that a man be this or that in his household? Before the what? What must a man be in his household? And then the seven categories are A through G of just different categories, a little bit similar to uh, what we had in our last build, categorizing the one another's, as uh, Eric Martin served us so well in that. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray according to First Thessalonians 4.1 that says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. God, I pray for the men in this room, for those who will hear this word recorded, that your word will be more deeply planted in their mind, in their hearts. That they would see you as such a good father to give such clear instructions to them as men in their household. I thank you for your clarity. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you that you, you show us the the big picture of what you're doing and you get down to the nitty-gritty details so kind of you God thank you for your love on us expressed primarily through your son and his sacrificial death on the cross he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God, help us to be reminded of things we know, to learn what we don't know, so that we might uh, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So the why before the what. Uh, there's not a lot of writing in your notes. There's one place for writing, but just kind of working down from the beginning. Household commands fit within the context of the household of faith. If you're in Ephesians, just want to look, allude to a couple of things in chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. My Bible breaks this up into two pericopes. Verses 1 through 10 are, uh, it says, by grace through faith, and verses 11 through the end of the chapter says, one in Christ. But in this passage, uh, it clearly says that the members of the church are members of the household of God. It's like two huge waves coming. Like if you're on the ocean and you're looking, you're like, that's a big one. Everybody look. I know you're kind of looking at other things around, around the beach, but here comes a big wave. There's two huge waves coming at us in Ephesians 2. The first wave is be amazed that you were what Ephesians 2 says, dead in your trespasses and sins. You were children of wrath. You were following the prince of the power of the air. You were characterized by disobedience. You were dead. We were dead in our transgressions, but God. But God made us alive in Christ. God united us with him in Christ. The end of verse 5, By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the first big wave of Ephesians chapter 2 is, you were dead, you were hopeless, but God united us to himself through Christ. What an amazing thing. And then, wave 2, it's as if Paul is saying, let me clarify this again. Do you know what you were? Um, and he uses different words, and he's talking about uh, the Gentiles, those who were outside of the Jewish people, called the uncircumcision, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, uh, without God, that's godless, without hope, that's hopeless. But what happened? Verses 19 through 21. God united us, Jew and Gentile, into one new man. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So there we have the word household. But see this amazing thing. One, that God saved you at all unto himself. And two, he took you out of your household. And it's not just you and Jesus, 
It's you and Jesus in the household of God. It's us in the household of God. So if you're going to talk about or get motivated to live your life as a man of God in the household, in your household, whatever they, that might be, and it could change from unmarried to, to married to single for, for life to, to being the, the man of the house to, to being a grandfather, it changes, right? It morphs. But if you're going to, to be that, remember, remember that you always get to be in the household of God because of his kindness to you. This is, a, this is an amazing thing that God has done and should make us zealous to figure out what's it like, what am I supposed to be in my household? Uh, because I know that I'm going to be in the household of God and, and rubbing shoulders with brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and if this is important to God, it's important to me. So this, again, we're on the why. The character of the household, third bullet, impacts the character of the church. Uh, your growth in godliness impacts our church, Grace Bible Church. Titus 2, if you want to circle, verse 10, um, he talks about specific, well, specific stations in life, whether uh, it's master or servant, bond servant, slave. But in verse 10, 2.10, your life is to be lived in honor of God in the household because it adorns the doctrine of God. Our lives adorn the gospel. Um, and chapter 3, verse 8, if you wanted to note that down, uh, it's good for you. This is good for you. Living for God, God's way in your household is good for you. It's good for the believers in your household. It's good for the unbelievers in your household. Um, God is just so kind to give us these reasons to live for him in the household. The next bullet, God places a high priority on the leaders of a household. So that Titus passage is speaking about the importance of elders <clears throat> and what they must be. But this is, uh, if that's important to the church, what an elder must be in the household of God, well, God doesn't change when it comes to the households, individuals, single households. So it's, it must be important to God what the leaders of the household are and how they are to uh, act, how they are to lead, how they are to um, demonstrate godliness. And then the next bullet, God gives specific director directives for our role in every season of life. Um, he's a God of order. He's the God of clarity. He's the good father who not only rescues us from waywardness and does make you his own, but he directs us and guides us uh, all throughout our life as sons, grandsons, fathers, single, married, young, and old. So, um, it's just a good, good father and good reasons why we should want to 
see what are these categories. The next bullet, as a household member, if you want to write identity, identity for that bullet, Paul speaks in Ephesians 6, 5, to slaves, and Ephesians 6, 10, to masters. And his emphasis to them on their godliness towards their master, whether he's a believer or unbeliever, or towards their slave, is remember their identity. Remember your identity. You belong to God. And remember their identity. They're either enemies of God, and you're adorning the gospel as you relate to them, or they are believers and beloved. And you are to, uh, to love them because they are, they are God's children. Uh, that master belongs to God. Or that master who's an unbeliever needs to see the gospel lived out in your life. He's not going to go to your church, um, your gathering, your ecclesia. So... He's going to get his theology of what you believe uh, based on how you live. How you live is going to be a walking uh, book of a practical theology. Oh, this is, what, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what's important. This is what uh, is emphasized in living for God. And then that last bullet, as a household leader, whether it's master husband, father. Uh, this is opportunity. So if you wanted to write anything for that last bullet, it's opportunity. In 1 Timothy 6, 1, he says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name and teaching may not be reviled. So this is... Your, your life should demonstrate godliness so that your master or others looking in on your life um, will not have any reason to revile the doctrine of God, the truth of God, the gospel, which I just said. And then Ephesians 6, 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, but rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, you in the household, whether it's believers, or whether it's unbelievers, or whether it's, I don't know if she's saved, I don't know if he's saved. Well, God has directives for both. And uh, if that one is a believer, then we'll put into practice this uh, Greek word, you have one Greek word for today, molista. It's the excel still more or all the more. The molista principle. Principle. That we do well to all, but especially, or molista, to those of the household of faith. So why should we A through G? Uh, because God saves sinners. God saves sinners unto himself. And God saves sinners into his household. God gives directives. He gives directives towards unbelievers. In your life towards unbelievers. In your life towards believers. 
And why should we care about our household? Well, you're in your household most of the time. You're not in the household of faith most of the time. And, but God is working all the time. God's at work all the time, and you're in your household most of the time. And so make the most of every opportunity that you have every day, wherever you are in your household, as your household does morph and change. Because God is always at work. So A through G. These will be brief. I encourage you to go back to the passages. Uh, if you have time, Allow, ask the Lord to help your heart to be um, convicted or encouraged where it needs to be. But the first is a managing well man. A managing well man. And for the passage, it's 1 Timothy 3, verse 4 and 12. 4 and 12. 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. This is talking about elders. But it says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then in verse 12, in a similar fashion, qualifications for deacons. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own, own households well. So we've been taught that elders and deacons, these, care, these qualifications are what elders or deacons are to be exemplary in. They're not like uh, a, a deacon needs to manage his household well and non-deacons don't have to manage at all. That's obviously wrong. But with managing well, the emphasis on management is on souls, not stuff. Certainly, we must, we must manage the whole household. But the emphasis in these passages is on souls, not stuff. Why do I say that? Verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So we're talking about souls. Same thing in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So all who are in their households, servants, relatives, wife, children. So the emphasis on managing is managing the greatest resource that God has given you in your home. I almost thought of asking the trick question. What's your greatest resource in your household? The answer is people are the greatest resource in our household. We are to manage them. And to manage is to direct, to preside over, to oversee, to guide, to lead. What your note says, it's literally to stand before. So this is an overseer. This is the shepherd in the home to manage your own household, to direct, not just deal with problems, to direct, to preside over, not just put up with, but to preside over, to oversee, not overlook, to guide, not just get by. And to lead, 
Leadership is not for the lazy of heart. But it says to manage well. So there's the definition for well in your notes. This is not only inherently good, but aesthetically good or pleasing to the eye. It's well in God's sight. That next sentence should be corrected uh, where it says this includes but is not limited to order in the house. Uh, I just want to emphasize again that the emphasis on managing well is managing human beings, managing souls, shepherding souls. So <clears throat> consider, if you are a husband, consider these words toward your helpmate uh, if you have a, a wife, a believing wife. She is to come under your leadership and she also, 1 Timothy 5.14 uh, confirms, is to be in the management business as well. 1 Timothy 5.14, <clears throat> Paul says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So she's a co-manager with you of souls. She's a co-manager with you. And how are you directing? How are you presiding over? How are you uh, leading, standing before the family? You know, when there's a knock at the door, maybe a generation ago, and someone says, can I speak to the man of the house? Like, that used to be something people say, right? Older guys, can I speak to the man of the house? Um, I haven't heard that in the last 20 years. I've had police come to my door for different reasons we can talk about later, but it's, uh, you know, this is what we should take to heart. We are the man of the house, and we are to lead in these ways. Four ways that I thought of as categories to maybe consider further, and then we'll move on, is conflict resolution, how are you managing, managing well in that? Financial stewardship, which we've been taught on, something we can always grow in. It definitely affects the human souls in our house. <clears throat> Spiritual leadership, Ben talked about that this morning with scripture memory, leading our family devotionally and household hospitality. How, is, how can you practice hospitality as a unit? Uh, maybe it's two single guys living together. Uh, brothers in Christ. Uh, Jacob and DJ. How can you practice hospitality? How can you do that in a way that's, that's honoring to the Lord? Um, or a father of a big family. Or a growing family. Or a widowed a husband, uh, or a husband who is no longer married but still watches over his children half-time. Uh, consider, how can you obey the, these commands to manage your own household? You're called to manage, dads, sons, uh, men of the household. You're not called to be Mr. Mom. You're called to manage. Next, 
a, season, a seasonable man. If I could, I would retitle that uh, a model man, being a model. But I think I put seasonable because it was uh, focused on Titus 2, if you want to turn there. And older men, younger men. Titus 2, older men, younger men. So let's read Titus 2.2. 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older men. So this is either for you or you're headed that way. So start practicing all of them, right? Sober-minded, that's temperate, uh, would be another translation. It's free from negative influences. It's clear-minded. You're to be a clear-minded man. Have your mind, it's, it's a, definitely a mental uh, trait that we are to have as older men. Dignified, another translation would be honorable or held in honor. And to think about, you know, if you're an older man, uh, we want we want to hold older, older men in honor. But is your life, is your life honorable? Is your life uh, worthy of praise and honor? Self-controlled, that's managing yourself well. And remember managing overseeing your own soul well, guiding your own soul uh, in paths of righteousness, going to God's word, thinking on his word day and night, self-control, managing yourself well in all aspects, in your speech, in your conduct, in your the way that you act towards unbelievers and the way that you, malista principle, especially act towards believers. And then sound in faith. Sound in faith. It's sound. Healthy. This is where we get the word hygiene. It's properly at work. It's in a healthy condition. Fit. Sound. Sound in faith. Faith without hypocrisy. Faith that is trusting in God. Faith that is growing in the knowledge of God. This is what it means to be sound in faith. Do you want to trust God more to, in, a, in a year from now than you do now? Do you want to grow in your faith? Well, listen to Jonathan Edwards. Because he says... Men will trust in God no further than they know him. That's what he said. I put it to music. Men will trust in God no further than they know him. So continue to press on in your knowledge of God through his word. To know who he is so that you may be sound in faith. I'm hoping that young men and old men are taking this to heart. And some guys are like, I don't know which I am. 
but somebody called me viejito the other day and woof. <laughs> all right um so sound in faith sound in love now it says sound in faith in love and steadfastness but sound goes with all of these healthy fit in love fit in love who loves much it's the one who's been forgiven much that's what our lord taught us right so if you want to be sound in love Continue to go to the fountain of living water. The one who spoke with the woman at the well. The one who allowed his feet to be touched by that woman. Um, she loved much because uh, she was forgiven much. And 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. So I'm sure we'll get there in Revelation, but... We don't want to leave our first love. We don't want to forget um, God's love for us. We want to grow in our understanding of his love for us. And then sound and steadfastness. Sound and steadfastness. That's morally fixed. That's a moving word. Steadfast, staying on course, firmly persistent. This is what older men are to be. In the home, outside the home, in the household of faith, outside the household of faith. Then younger men, get the likewise in verse 6. So I'll just read verses 6 through 8. We've get a, we've get a, we have a specific self-controlled for young men, and then we have words to Titus about being a model of good works. So reading Titus 2, 6 through 8. Likewise, Titus, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So, self-controlled. Uh, this is something we can always think of, young or old. But young men, think about why this specific uh, command is given to you in Titus 2. I won't say me, but I want to be self-controlled. To curb one's passions. To, to be moderate in your self-assessment. To not think more highly of yourself than you ought. To be self-controlled. But whether we are young or old, this last uh, bullet is the last part. Young or old, we're to be peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. Along with that, we're to be submissive to authorities and to rulers. I see a common trend of of being uh, quick with the tongue or the text or the tweet regarding authorities and rulers that God has put in place. And it's something to consider as we talk about it behind closed doors or just, it's just informal, informal chat with my friend. Um, just to consider your, your own discernment with your speech 
or text or tweet? Um, are you being submissive to authorities and rulers? But in all these, we're to be ready for blank, blank, zealous for, devoted to, learning to vote ourselves to, to what? Good works. So the only blank on this uh, sheet is those two spaces right there. Good works. These are all things that we're supposed to be zealous for. Good works in the household. Good works coming out of our household. Good works towards unbelievers. But the Molista principle, good works especially towards believers. Next is letter C, a ministering man. Staying in Titus, he ends in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So we're to be, we are to be bearing good fruit, bearing good fruit in our life, uh, wherever we are. But as before leading our household, then our household is to be bearing good fruit. So where do we look for these urgent needs? Where do you look? I mean, people aren't knocking on your door, mostly, saying, uh, hey, my car ran out of gas. I just needed enough to get across town. Just, you got a $10? I mean, I know we get those asked sometimes. But where should we look? Well, we should look in our closet. We should look to have a ministry of prayer. Each man has a ministry of prayer. If you pray at all, you have a ministry of prayer. Are you cultivating that? Are you loving your brothers in Christ? Are you loving the lost in prayer? This is something I want to be desperately to grow in. And I'm still trying new tricks after being a Christian for 36 years. Um, new ways to cultivate growth in prayer. Um, my most recent one is three by five cards with specific prayer requests and trying to attach a specific verse to it. But um, I hope that encourages you to excel still more in your ministry. As a ministry man, look to your closet, your prayer closet. Grace Bible Church has a ministry called Helping Hands, and that's variety from, it's not just a, uh, Families with a, a new child, there's, there's other needs. So the Helping Hand Ministries, you can find out about that. You can be put on the, put on the list where if there's an opportunity for you to provide for an urgent need, you can step up. Um, where should we look? We should, we should look in, in our own household, members of our own household. Are we aware of the urgent needs in our own household? The soul needs of our household, S-O-U-L. We should look in gospel advancing opportunities. The missions of Grace Bible Church. Um, the evangelistic efforts of Grace Bible Church. The church planting efforts of Grace Bible Church uh, and others. But God has put us together in this local church. And there are a myriad of gospel opportunities. Um, 
Next Generation Ministry is a great gospel opportunity to bring the truth of the gospel to a little group of first or second graders or even three-year-olds um, up to fifth grade student ministries. So that's how we are to help cases of urgent need. But I'm supposed to talk about the household, not the household of faith. I wanted to include some examples for the entire household. Um, the example of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. So we will go out of the pastoral epistles to Romans. If you go there with me. He's only mentioned once in the word. And he gets a few verses. But here's an example of a man who was on the lookout for urgent need, for gospel advance opportunities. Romans chapter 12. Oh, my fault. Sorry, man. Second Timothy. I knew I shouldn't have left the pastoral epistles. Second Timothy 1, 16 through 18. My apologies. Paul says, 2 Timothy 1, 16-18, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So this is Paul talking about Onesiphorus refreshing him when he was imprisoned. Verse 17, But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So this is just the kind of man Onesiphorus was. Showing some kind of relief, some kind of refreshment. And uh, he may have been dead at the writing of this letter. Since Paul says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. You know, in other passages when he commends specific men, um, he's commending them as if there's going to be an interaction between Onesiphorus and the church. But here it's to the household of faith. So, you know, talk about a, a legacy of, of just a few verses in the, in the New Testament. This is Onesiphorus. And may we do well to their household and may we have that kind of heart that he had towards towards the gospel thus towards Paul towards the gospel growing in all areas uh, going forth sounding forth to Paul to his apostolic team uh, or other fellow servants so it's just an example of a ministering man. But we are to, uh, Romans twelve thirteen. we are to contribute to the needs as we see. But particularly, this is another Malista principle to the needs of the saints to show hospitality. 
hospitality at the word itself means stranger loving, loving strangers, but it's also something that we should show refreshment towards our beloved believers. Next is a Christ-like man in marriage. So Ephesians 5.25 and Colossians 3.19, we're going to look at the, the selfless and selfish. What we ought to be and what we ought not be in those two verses. Um, 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church, Paul? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What do you mean gave himself up for her? He delivered himself up to death. Dying. This is why Paul rejoices to say, I die daily. Um, dying daily for your wife. But here are just some meditations upon some of the ways of the love of the Lord for his bride. I'm sure you can add more. But these are, the, these are things that we see Jesus doing for his bride. Praying for her. Simon, Simon, but I have prayed for you. Praying with her. How many examples do we have of Jesus doing that? With his disciples. To know and to be known by her. To help her prioritize Lord, Lord, we cast out 26 demons in one day. Okay, well, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Help her prioritize. Provide refreshment for her. Come away with me. Let's go to an isolated place. My disciples, provide refreshment for her. Help her excel in being your co-laborer. Be with her. Be alone with her. Sacrifice for her. Stand up for her. Stand up to her. Because she also is a sinner and a fellow heir of grace. So there will be times that you have to stand and confront in love that woman that's what you want her to do for you right to stand up and say my beloved husband your tone of voice towards the children please uh, praise God when our wives have that kind of courage and we also need to have that kind of courage for our wives encourage her forgive her Bear with her. Communicate to her your prayers for her. Nourish her. Cherish her. These are the Ephesians 5 um, two phrases that are a category that all these fly under. Nourish and cherish. Be patient with her. Be gentle to her. But then Colossians 319, most fathers will get to fathers know not to uh, provoke our children to anger. Colossians 319, husbands, 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not make bitter them. Don't embitter them. Don't exasperate them. So I did some thinking on that and how I exasperate my wife or can embitter my wife. One is by half listening or reading her email or text, but not reading the details. It just shows that you're busy. You didn't care. Or you're busy and you didn't care. So half listening, not only to text, to emails, but of course face to face. If you're going to put the phone down for a visitor who comes for a five minute visit, well, can your wife get the same kind of treatment? If she has something on her heart, you think this might be two minutes, it might be 20. Um, to put it down. So half listening embitters, belittling embitters, neglecting to show gratitude, stopping thanking her for all the things that she does on a daily basis because you're just so used to them. Um, that neglect can embitter and exasperate your wife. Or you can just stop studying her. Stop living with her in an understanding way. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 27 years and she's changing. She's changing. I'm noticing that she's starting to enjoy nature more. She's starting to enjoy a sun, sunset or she's calling me outside to go look at a rainbow where early in our marriage it was me calling her say, honey, you got to see this. Um, so she's changing with her strengths and her weaknesses. And so I can never stop studying her. Salt, um, how about this one for exasperating? Solving the problem when she just wanted you to know her and to feel her grief. Maybe to mourn with those who mourn. Or procrastinating on a decision, not solving a problem. Uh, that, that ought to be solved and ought to be made. So consider these, these things as we love our wives or as we prepare, if the Lord wills, to provide a wife for us someday. F, a father imitating man in the home. Ephesians 6, 4 and Colossians. So we have the same uh, two letters to go back to for E and F. But uh, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This is very similar to husbands. Do not be harsh with your wife. Don't exasperate. Don't embitter. Don't provoke to anger. Don't rouse to wrath. Or don't exasperate where you're diminishing hope. So I just have this list that was compiled, uh, stolen from these two resources. Successful Christian Parenting by John MacArthur and Heart of Anger. You can read the list. I'm going to talk about two. The third, uh, favoritism or practicing partiality. I have eight sons. Some of them are more enjoyable to be around than others. 
Some of them are more stubborn, more hard-hearted, less inclined to listen to me, if you can imagine that, than others. So in subtle ways, I am tempted, almost on a daily basis, to practice favoritism uh, with how I spend my time, how I interact with my children. Am I going to see that person, like Paul says, as made in the image of God, as the one that God's given me to steward their soul, regardless of how they respond to me? Or am I going to do things with a particular child that are to my fancy, things that I enjoy? Or am I really going to sacrifice for them? So favoritism can be one that is uh, what Jerry Bridges would call a respectable sin um, or something that most people wouldn't see. But allow God's spirit to convict your soul if to any degree there's favoritism in your relationships in your household. Practicing partiality. God takes that very seriously and God wants to grow us to be selfless towards all of our sons and daughters and towards our wife or our roommate, uh, whoever it might be, but this one is a father imitating man, uh, to be selfless, not selfish. The other neglect, you know, just this is kind of think of sins of omission or things that we might do that uh, ought to be done, not do that ought to be done. So that's two. And then unhealthy comparisons. This is very common in our culture, comparing. Comparing one another to one another. Paul says we ought not to do that. That is, that is not wise. Um, not like your brother. Why can't you just do this or that and this way or that way? like your brother, like your sister. Um, you know, we do want to point out godly examples for our children, whether it's ourselves uh, or our spouse or, or another brother. So we can, we can point to that. This is, this, is, this is a good thing. How your brother just, you know, how your sister just treated you. Um, how your sister, that was very sacrificial just to uphold that. But we can do that uh, in a way that celebrates God's work and we ought to do that in a way that doesn't say so why don't you be more like that why don't you be more like him more like her so these are these are provoking ways so we're commanded to teach and to train to teach and to train little by little to give clear instruction competent instruction to be exemplary ourselves fathers to bring them up, right? Bring them up. This is an ongoing, daily, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is, uh, this is what a good coach does. A good coach. Tell me what to do. Show me what to do. Tell me how to do it. Correct me because I want to do this well. I want to do this right. Um, this is the training and teaching that's, that's needed and demanded of fathers with children. One way we can do that is by being by being a good coach is is not just correcting every 
every error, but noticing progress, um, pointing out progress, saying the words, I noticed that. I noticed that. There could be six things that were done wrong, but one that was done right or with the right motive. Um, I noticed that. That was really kind of you to do that. So we do that morning and evening. We do that by example and practice. We do that in planned and premeditated ways. And we're with our children, so we should do that in spontaneous ways, looking for opportunities, praying, Lord, help me as I go to the park today, uh, or as I pick up my child from school today, to find opportunities to point out your work, uh, your glory, truth to this child. Teach and train. And the last is an on-the-watch man. Letter G. Men in the household are to be an on-the-watch man. This is really a self-watch. Our own heart desires. This is our own heart shepherding. You know, one of the things we have to watch out for is success. Um, this is what God warns his people. I can't go outside of the New Testament epistles. This is a New Testament survey, right? My aunt survey. But God warns his people, when things go well for you, beware. Be on the watch. 1 Timothy 6 talks about the love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. And as I thought about this, you know, I'm not a rich man, but the love of money is not in need of money to be bound by its lust. I mean, think of Gollum. My precious. He didn't have much, but he was a lustful man, a lustful little creature. But all of us... Uh, are to be on the watch for the love of money. Regardless of our income, our W-2 statement. And then uh, for the sake of our prayers, we need to be on the watch. James 4.3 talks about you you ask but you do not receive because you, you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your passions. You could be asking for a good thing with despicable motives at the bottom of it. So just think about that. That's, that can affect your prayers. You need to be on the watch. And then the last day's danger, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. We need to be on the watch. I want you to notice in, the, in this list um, the appearance of godliness. The people who have an appearance of godliness who are disqualified to tell me and my household what to think. Just think about it. What comes in your household as we read verses 1 through 9. But understand this, Timothy. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, 
unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Avoid such people. People are coming into our household. They're coming in maybe with a knock on the door, but more likely through media. More likely through what goes in the, in the ear and eye gate. On TV, on podcasts, on our smartphones. And these people may even have the appearance of godliness, but they're disqualified to lead, to guide, to stand before me and my household and tell us what we ought to think. I know where to go to for, uh, for truth. I go to God's word. I go to godly pastors and godly brothers in Christ to tell me the truth, to speak the truth in love, to train me up as a 50-year-old to continue to grow in the knowledge of God because I know that men will trust in God no further than they know him and that he is known most clearly in his word. So be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Knowing that your household, God is forming you, shaping you, fitting you and fitting you into this household. You're already fit because you're already here on build on a Saturday morning. You're in God's household and you're growing and we're growing together. So what you do in your household affects me and my household. So on behalf of my wife and my children, be a man of God in your household. Love you, brothers. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word that is clear. Thank you for your word that doesn't disappear and we can turn to it day after day. We can use our smartphones. We can have different versions. And God, I pray that we will take what Ben said to heart to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you, that we might be a blessing to our household, that we might be a greater sharpened instrument in this world, but especially in the household of faith at Grace Bible Church. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. Amen.